let's, um, before we move into our study in the book of Kings, let's just bow our hearts and just commit this to the Lord, shall we? Well, Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that it is truth and that it's living and powerful. And this morning as we study your word, we pray you speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we recognize that he is the teacher and that we are to sit humbly before him, before your word. And Lord, just lay aside our prejudice, our preconceived ideas, and just allow you to speak to us, we pray. Uh, Father, whatever situation we are in in our lives at the moment, Lord, there is something in this study this morning that you can use to speak to us. Father, we just pray you give us open ears, and Lord, that we would grow together in knowledge and grace. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are journeying through Kings. We've already gone through looking at the opening chapters. Um, in chapter 5, we looked at previously, uh, we see the building preparations for the temple. This great commission that God had given to Solomon. Again, David had had the, the desire, but it's God that actually gives Solomon the commission of building this temple. Chapter 6 really deals with the kind of construction of the temple and so on. Um, and then the opening portion of chapter 7 that we looked at and concluded with last week was looking at Solomon's own palace. Now, three different buildings seem to be alluded to in the text. Um, and it seems to be that we have one building with three separate parts to it. Um, so Solomon's own residence, this um, palace of the cedars of Lebanon, which seems to be like the, the state function room and so on uh, and then also the place where the um, his wife the daughter of pharaoh and the harem and so on would have uh, uh, lived and dwelt so this all part of this one big complex uh, is what most scholars seem to to believe is the way it's set up there and those opening 12 verses of chapter 7 deal with that which then leads us on to chapter 7 and picking up verse 13, which will take us through to the end of the chapter, looking at the furnishings in the temple. And there's some interesting things that we'll look at there. And then finally, we'll conclude this morning uh, with chapter 8, uh, the dedication of the temple. One of the most amazing prayers in scripture. Um, so we'll have a look at that in a moment when we get there. So let's jump in chapter 7 and we've kind of picking up verse 13. Just again, let me remind you. That that which we're looking at here isn't just history. It's not just boring stuff that's written down about something that really doesn't affect you today. Because Peter tells us that we are living stones. This verse from First Peter 2, the first five verses, verse 5 on its own just says, You are lively stones, living stones, built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Seven times in the New Testament, Paul tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not just a you know, picture language in that sense. This is a, a really, every part of the temple relates to our own lives, our own being. And there's an incredible correlation in these things. And we've already seen how we were these stones that were hewn out of the world and that we're being built up into this spiritual house. Just as these stones were taken out of the quarries and so on up in Lebanon and then brought down, all that work was done in preparation. And then these stones, once they're ready, are put in the place ready to be built up in this building that brings glory to God. And so there's a lot of lessons for the church and for you and I in the things that we're studying. Again, just to uh, remind you of what we looked at last week from an a, um, artistic point of view. That's a, a picture, a representation of the temple. And we looked at a lot of the things that were uh, done for the inside of the temple. The things that we're going to be looking at now will deal with all the, th- the things uh, that are around the temple, the altars and so on. 
again, just looking at the Holy of Holies, this central part, we have these cherubim, these kind of winged creatures, the wings touching either side and overshadowing the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the center. And again, the curtain would have come in, in front of this, um, just closing this off so it wouldn't be seen from the outside. And of course, that's the curtain that comes down on the uh, day of the crucifixion. Uh, it's torn in two, uh, again symbolizing now that the way to the most holy place is now being made possible by the blood of Jesus. Okay, so let's pick up, as we said just a moment ago, from verse 13. And we're going to get introduced to this individual by the name of Hiram. Let's just read the, work, uh, the words. Uh, King Solomon sent and fetched Hiram out of Tyre. He was a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre. So we've got here... Effectively a Jew, his mother was a Jew, but his father was a man of Tyre. Uh, God really encouraged the Jews not to uh, intermarry with other people. Uh, in fact, they got in a lot of trouble for that in previous times through their history. God wanted them to remain separate for a number of reasons, not least the fact that they were to be the nation through whom the Messiah was going to come, and there was to be no um, problems uh, from a genetic point of view, and so on. We've looked at these things in studies past, but... This individual has a Jewish mother, and so we're told he's of the tribe of Naphtali, but he's a skillful man. We're told he's a worker in brass, and he's filled with wisdom and understanding, and cunning to work in all works of brass. And he came to King Solomon and wrought all his work. So Solomon fetches this man. I'm sure if we dig deeper, we could look at all sorts of spiritual lessons, even about this individual, who's in a sense part Gentile, part Jew. Um, you know, there may be other Jews that could have been picked and chosen, but God chooses this particular individual and has blessed him with these skills and abilities. And we're told he cast two pillars of brass, 18 cubits high apiece. And again, if you want to work out the measurements yourself, by all means go do so. A cubit typically is about 18 inches. Uh, it's the reckon, reckoned as being the measurement from the, the tip of your finger to your elbow. Uh, that's the measurement of a cubit. So 18 cubits high apiece. Uh, a line of 12 cubits did compass either of them about. So these are really wide, fat pillars uh, that are being erected here. And he made the two... And chapters of molten brass are set upon the top. So these are decorative pieces that sit on top of the pillars. The height of the one chapter was five cubits, and the height of the other chapter also was five cubits. Uh, the neck, uh, sorry, the nets of the chapter work and the wreaths of chain work uh, for the chapters which were upon the top of the pillars, uh, seven for one chapter and seven for the other chapter. And he made the pillars and two rows roundabout upon the one network and to cover the chapters that were upon the top with pomegranates. And so he did for the other chapter. And the chapters that were upon the top of the pillars uh, were of lily work uh, in, the, uh, in the porch uh, for the cubits. So these things are done. They're very decorative, very pretty, very ornate. Uh, incredible amount of skill goes into uh, the design of these things. And no doubt as people would come to the temple and look at these uh, incredible pillars that were standing up at the front, uh, they would be just very, very wowed by just the, uh, the appearance of these things. Again, uh, the bright, shining uh, brass here uh, was going to reflect the sunlight. Interestingly, they don't support anything. They're just pillars that stand there, freestanding. They're not supporting anything else. We're told and the chapters upon the two pillars, these decorative pieces on the top, had pomegranates also above, uh, over against the belly, which was by the network. And the pomegranates were 200 in a row and about uh, upon the other chapter. And he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple, and he set up the right pillar and called the name thereof Jakin, or Yakin, depending how you... And he set up the left pillar and called the name thereof Boaz. That's a name we're familiar with. Now these two names, um, 
Yakin just means establish, and Boaz means strengthen. And commentators have made much of these things. Um, and the Jews themselves uh, obviously see a, a lot in the fact that these names are ascribed to them. Um, that God, of course, does establish and strengthen us. He'd establish and strengthen Solomon. And maybe that's partly why Solomon chooses these names and so on. And upon the top of the pillars was lily work, so the work of the pillars was finished. And again, just to remind you, these are the kind of pillars that we've got. So outside the front of the temple, uh, these very ornate pillars and these large decorative pieces that are sat up on the top with these um, brass kind of pomegranates again round the top of it. And then we get to a very interesting verse, verse 23. And he made a molten sea. To you and I, a big bath. Okay, is a laver uh, is another term that's used in scripture for this thing. Um, Ten cubits from one brim to the other. Okay, so uh, again, 18 inches, so uh, 180 inches is what you're looking at um, from, from one side to the other. It was ramped all about, and his height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits did compass it round about. Now, at this point, the critics jump in, and they say, we've got an error in the Bible. And it's quite interesting because we see this so often. Now, again, this is typically what this thing looks like. Uh, we're going to find we've got this big dish, effectively, but big, basically a big bath. Now, that's the height of a man, five cubits approximately in height. So that's the height of this thing. It would have sat upon these uh, images of bulls um, that would have been three aside around it, facing outwards and on a little plinth itself. And so we're told that the diameter is 10 cubits from one side to the other. But then we also have this kind of problem because we're told that the circumference is 30 cubits. Now I'm not sure what you remember from school and when you did maths. But technically that is a mathematical error because effectively we're told that the circumference is three times the diameter. And I'm sure you're all sitting there thinking, no, that's wrong, because you know that the circumference is pi times the diameter, and pi being 3.1459265358979. I'm sure you've got that down already. That's mathematically the correct uh, calculation of how we work out the circumference once we know the diameter. So once we know the diameter, we can multiply it by a factor of 3.14, so on, and we get the answer. Now, interestingly, a Muslim... Um, a scholar uh, by the name of Shabir, back in 1998, was having a debate with Jay Smith uh, on this. And he actually highlighted this as an error in the Bible. So we can't trust the Bible because the Bible's got this wrong. Now, a lot of people have kind of gone and said, well, actually, this is close enough. You know, it's an approximation. It, it's not intended to be a mathematical formula and so on. Um, but, you know, is that the case? Uh, I mean, is that a good enough answer for us? Certainly, um, this interestingly, the Shabir um, basically talked about the, the um, size of it and everything else and just, just was joking. And he apparently made the comment, find me a bath like that and I'll get baptised in it. This is this Muslim scholar. Now, interestingly, I don't think he has yet been baptised, um, but if he understands what he's looking at here, maybe he'd want to be. Because, once again, I'm not sure if anybody saw the, uh, the post I put up on the website uh, a few days ago, but... You know, the critics love to hold aloft these things that they think prove the Bible wrong, only to find that they're gems that prove the divine authorship of, of, of Scripture. You know, and every time critics seem to go, look, I've got it, I've found the thing that disproves the Bible, that which they're waving turns out to be just another piece of the overwhelming evidence that proves the Bible really is God's Word. Now, there you've got on the screen the text 
uh, in English, but also then the text in Hebrew. That's the way it would appear if you were in a Hebrew Bible. Now, one of the Jewish scholars noticed that there was an issue um, because this word in the text is misspelt. Now, rather than trying to correct it, we looked a few weeks ago at what the scribes did. They wouldn't go and amend or write anything that they thought, um, but they put a note in the margin of what they thought was the correct spelling. Okay, effectively, we've got a, a hey at the end of this uh, this uh, word here. Okay, so the correction has been placed in the margin, but the original has been left unaltered. A wise thing to do. Okay, so the original word is, uh, is kithef, uh, but there's the kire is the word that should be used in the in the text there. Now you'll also know that with Hebrew in the Hebrew language, every letter has a corresponding numerical value. So if we start at the beginning, our Aleph uh, is uh, corresponding, that's like an A, corresponding to the number one, a Bet corresponding to two, and by the way, Aleph, Bet, that's where we get the name Alphabet from, if you wondered. Um, and then Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, all the way through the Hebrew alphabet, they have numerical values. And so they can use their letters also um, to add up things. So every Hebrew word will also have a numerical value. Now, if we look at the variation um, that's written there, uh, and again, then we've got the one. This is the, the, what's in the, the text, and this is the one that's actually put in the, um, the margin, the correction, uh, apparently. We look at the values of those Hebrew letters. We've got here, the first letter is this kof, uh, which is a value of 100. Uh, the second one here is uh, vav. And then that's the value of six, and then the hey, which is the value of five. So they're the letters that occur in, in these words. So we can actually look at the first word, or the, the, the one that's in the margin is 106 in value, because we've just got the kof uh, and the vav, uh, the two letters there, just add those together, 106. But then we've got the three letters in the correct spelling, which make a total of 111. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, I'm not sure who did it, but somebody figured out that if you just divide... The, the correct spelling by the one that's in the text, it actually comes to a value, coincidentally, of 31.450943396296 cubits. That means that it's the exact circumference with an error of less than 15 thousandths of an inch in a circumference of over 46 feet. Now, it's not something you find on the surface. But as you do a little bit of digging, you know, whenever you find these little things in the Bible, a little bit of diligent study just reveals that there is something more. The, the Jews, uh, the scribes and so on, you speak of something called a remez, a hint of something deeper. You know, and when they find these little things, and, and we're grateful to whoever it has been or whoever, the number of scholars through the centuries that have noticed this misspelling, and rather than trying to change it and alter it, they've left it as it was. You see, God's word stands. And all the critics laugh and mock and so on until suddenly they're silenced and they're shown that the Bible is absolutely true. And again, this variation compared with the original gives us the exact dimension to a greater accuracy than would be required even by today's uh, engineering standards and so on. We then carry on. And verse 24 tells us, speaking of this bath, this laver, uh, under the brim of it round about there were uh, knops um, compassing, uh, uh, compassing it, so just going round the edge, uh, ten and a cubit compassing the sea round about, and the knops were cast in two rows when it was cast. 
And he stood upon twelve oxen, those again you saw in the picture, three looking toward the north, three toward the west, three looking toward the south, three looking toward the east. And the sea, this big bowl basically, this big bath, uh, was set above them, uh, upon them, and their hinder parts were inwards. So again, as we saw, they're all facing outwards. And it was a handbreadth thick, and the brim thereof was wrought like the brim of a cup with flowers of lilies. It contained 2,000 baths. Oh, and once again, the critics jump on this. Ah, we've got another error. Because if we look in Chronicles, we see that we've got in 2 Chronicles 4 verse 5, it states that the laver received and held 3,000 baths. That's a measure, of course, uh, of water. But the Hebrew words, or Hebrew verbs rather, rendered received and held are different from that translated contained. Okay, so in our King's verse, or verse that we're looking at here, it says it contained 2,000 baths of water, this measure of water. Okay, and the Chronicles passage, it says it receives and held. They, they mean different things. Now, the problem for us in English, we sometimes use words in, interchangeably, and it doesn't change the meaning. But it's what we have here, quite simply, is that the sea ordinarily contained 2,000 baths. So that's what it contained, that was what's in there. But it had the capacity to hold 3,000 baths. There's no problem, no contradiction. And actually, when you look at the text, you just understand the Hebrew, there really is no problem. So again, the Chronicle simply mentions the capacity compared to, in Chronicles, compared to what is actually the water that was in there, uh, typically in the, the king's portion. So and we're looking somewhere uh, around about uh, 11,500 gallons, uh, typically, or upwards. Um, once again, another one of these things critics love to, to pick on. There's loads of these things through Kings, because Chronicles gives us very similar accounts. And so people look at those two, and they see differences. And immediately they think, the Bible's wrong, there's a contradiction. Without actually reading the text, or doing a little bit of diligent study. Once again, I, I, through the years, I've encountered so many of these alleged contradictions, I've yet to find one that holds up. Every time, if you do a bit of study, it reveals something uh, a little deeper, a little bit more interesting, more fascinating. And again, just attest to God's uh, hand upon the writing of Scripture from cover to cover. And then we're told that he made ten, made ten bases of brass. Four cubits was the length of one base, and four cubits the breadth thereof, and three cubits the height thereof. And the work of the base uh, was in this manner. They had borders. The borders uh, were between the ledges. And on the borders that were between the ledges were lions, oxen and cherubims. Interesting again, because you remember these are the faces that we have of the cherubim as we see them described within the book of Ezekiel. They're also seemingly the standards that we see over the Gospels. That Matthew presents his Gospel as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, Mark very much an oxen, a beast of burden. Jesus presented as a servant. So these kind of ideas again coming out. Um, Cherubim upon the ledges. There was a base above and beneath uh, the lions and oxen. Were added additional, um, sorry, additions made of thin work. And every base had four uh, brazen wheels and plates of brass, and the four corners thereof had undersetters under the twelve. Uh, sorry, under the laver were undersetters molten, and the side uh, of every addition. And in the um, in the mouth of it, where in the, the chapter and above was a cubit, but the mouth thereof was round about after the work of the base, a cubit and a half, and also upon the mouth of it were engravings with their borders four square and not round. Now, this is just going on to describe 
the additional lavers that are being made. As you saw in the picture we looked at earlier the temple, um, they had not just the one laver, but they had ten other lavers uh, that were used also for washing. To probably uh, for washing your hands in, as opposed to kind of bathing your entire body. But you remember that uh, if you look back in Leviticus, there was a number of things that the priests used to have to do before they could offer sacrifices. And obviously being ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean was a big part of that. Picking up verse 32. And under the borders were four wheels and the um, axle trees uh, of the wheels. And again, just parts of tree. That's what they are, axle wheels, uh, trees of the wheels were joined to the base. And the height of a wheel was a cubit and uh, half a cubit. And the work of the wheels was like the work of a chariot wheel. Their axle trees, uh, their knaves and their fellows and their spokes were all molten. And this is incredible. So we're making wheels here with spokes all out of this brass. Uh, and this Hiram is the individual that's then responsible for doing this and casting these. And they were, uh, uh, sorry, and there were four undersetters to the four corners of one base and the undersetters um, of the very base itself. So just sit underneath this, uh, this bath. And the top of the base uh, was there a round compass of a half a cubit high and on the top of the base the ledges thereof and the borders thereof were of the same. From the plates of the ledges thereof and on the borders thereof he graved cherubims, lions and palm trees according to the proportion of every one and additions round about. After this man, he made the ten bases. All of them had one casting, one measure, and one size. So each of these identical in size and so on, all made from the same castings. Uh, and they made ten levers of brass. One laver contained 40 baths. So these, these ten are much smaller than the big one we looked at a moment ago. And every laver was four cubits, and upon every one of the ten bases, one laver. And he put five bases on the right side of the house, of the temple, and five on the left side of the temple. And he set the sea on the right side of the house, eastward over against the south. So that picture you looked at, again, the, the south side on the east, southeast side, is where the big laver is put, this big uh, bath, effectively. But then you've got five of these smaller ones down the left side, five down the right side of the temple itself. And Hiram made the lavers and the shovels and the basins. So Hiram made an end of doing all the work that he made, King Solomon, for the house of the Lord. Uh, the two pillars and the two bowls of the chapters that were upon the top of the two pillars and the two networks to cover the two bowls of the chapters which are upon the top of the pillars. So just getting a list now of what he made. The 400 um, pomegranates. I mean, this is an incredible amount of work that's being done here. The 400 pomegranates for the two networks, even two rows of pomegranates for one network to cover the two bowls of the chapters that were upon the pillars and the ten bases and the ten lavers on the bases and one sea and twelve oxen under the sea. And the pots and the shovels, the basins, and all these vessels which Hiram made uh, to King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of bright brass. Again, it must have looked gorgeous when the sun was shining on the temple and all these scenes were just reflecting uh, the sunlight. Now, we read through this and of course there is a tendency to go, are we there yet? But you know, look how much detail God includes in the things that are being used in the temple. And think about your own life. Think about the detail that God is concerned about with you. You see, this is recorded there, not just to give us the information of what it looked like and how it was built, which it does. But there's a deeper truth to this. And that is that God is a God of the details. He cares about the little things of your life that most people wouldn't really be bothered about. All these little things God is interested in. The little details. 
and again, all of these things so that we should be light bearers for our king. Just as each one of these things was to bear the light, as the sun would shine upon it, it would reflect that light, you and I should be light bearers for our king. We're to be lights set up on a hill. We're told that all this work was done in the plain. It says, In the plain of Jordan did the king cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarethin. So as we saw a few weeks ago, the work was all done away from the Temple Mount. All these things are done and brought ready. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because they were exceeding many. Neither was the weight of the brass found out. So much is used um, that there's no measure put upon it. And Solomon made an end of all the vessels that pertained unto the house of the Lord. Uh, the altar of gold, the table of gold, whereupon the shewbread was. So um, these two things that I just mentioned here, that is a... a, a a replica, effectively, of what the original incense altar, overlaid with gold, would have looked like. So this is one of the fact, uh, artifacts. This is uh, actually taking a picture from the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. They've built this. It's ready. They're ready to go again when the re- temple is rebuilt. This is the one that they will put in there and be used. They've also got the table of showbread. So this is the table, 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of the nation. Um, it's quite a tall. I mean, that's, that's, that's as tall as, as you and I. Um, that table uh, and it goes to the top obviously with each level for the different loaves of bread to go on and then we're told in the candlestick of pure gold five on the right side five on the left side before the oracle that's again the oracle just to mention King James translation that's talking of the holy of holies um, with the flowers the lamps and the tongues of gold um, the bowls and the snuffers and the basins and the spoons the censers of, of pure gold the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the house to it, uh, of the temple. So, the first thing that's mentioned at the top of this, in verse 49, is the, the, the candlesticks, or the lampstands, being made of pure gold. Now, speaking here of these menorah. Now, we've got inside the temple, where is the tabernacle that had just been one menorah? In the temple, there were put ten of these menorahs five down one side five down another now typically that's what the menorah is what it looks like that's the one that again the temple institute have built and prepared Um, it used to sit here which was not far from the temple institute itself i understand it's now been moved to within sight of the temple mount which has irritated some um, but it's an intent uh, from the the jews that they are going to build their temple uh, like it or not and of course we know from scripture that the temple has to be rebuilt because antichrist is going to sit and desecrate that temple um, paul speaks of that uh, in uh, thessalonians second thessalonians and so on just to quickly mention though the lampstand because we've uh, maybe looked at this before but it's just worth mentioning here it was the only source of light in the tabernacle itself and of course therefore becomes the only source of light in the temple there's no other sources of light it, without it the holy oil could not give light so it's in, important that this uh, lampstand is uh, is there um, it's interesting that in the tabernacle there was one lampstand which is the number of god in the temple we have these 10 there's six, branch, six branches of each of these, uh, which is the number of man. Uh, again, the central lampstand, and then six branches either side. Um, the lampstand, again, is the vessel to hold up the light in the darkness. And Jesus himself says in Revelation 1.20 that the lampstand, the menorah, is representative of you and I, the church. So we should have a little bit of interest in this particular uh, artifact that's used in the temple. 
Interestingly, um, certainly for the original one uh, that's given for the tabernacle, um, the design is given, but again, no dimensions. There's no limits, which is very interesting because that speaks very much of the church. There's no limit that's given for the church. It's made of pure gold. That means it's been refined. It speaks of you and I. It's also made of one talent of beaten gold. Well, interestingly, the church is one body. And we are effectively beaten through the trials, through the tribulations, through the things that we go through. We are molded into shape. God uses those things, the sufferings, that we should count as pure joy. Because it's getting us ready. It's making us what God wants us to be. So, all of these things, you see, um, we have suggestions of how much a talent uh, would weigh. But the question, of course, is how could the branches of this support itself? If it was pure gold, one of the challenges that uh, people have looked at this have said is that it wouldn't support itself, that the arms would droop because they're coming out from the stem and the arms either side. The centre ones aren't so bad, but the outside ones, because of the weight of them, would just droop. So how did it support itself? And even the one that they've built, the Temple Institute have built, they've had to reinforce it. And again, just an interesting aside, of course, it needed, therefore, supernatural strengthening. There was no natural way they've been able to figure out how this could support itself. Well, doesn't that speak of the church? You know, how we need supernatural strengthening, how we should be this light bearer. The oil, the Holy Spirit is placed within us, and then we show forth that light. So just an interesting aside there, speaking of this lampstand again, that was uh, used in the, the tabernacle and ultimately then in the temple. And so this chapter concludes and says, So was ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Lord. And Solomon brought in the things which David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and the vessels did he put among the treasures of the house of the Lord. So all of these things, again, just incredible wealth, incredible value to all of these things. So now we move on to an amazing chapter. This is one of these chapters that's just worth reading and rereading. It's just a wonderful prayer that we see that Solomon will lift up before, before God, before the throne. We read, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel and to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out to the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon, at the feast in the month of uh, Ethnaim, uh, which is the seventh month. Now, you remember that David had wanted to bring the ark up into Jerusalem. And again, this tabernacle had been erected and built in Jerusalem. And they sent down men to go and get the ark. And of course, they put the ark on the back of a, a cart. Because that's how the Philistines had sent it back after it had been captured. And so they do the same thing. They put it on the back of a cart and one of the oxen stumbles. And uh, this man, we're told in the book of Samuel, reaches out, touches it and God strikes him down dead. And David's really unhappy about this. But of course, David then realizes that God has given very clear and strict instructions about how these things were to be moved. Because of what they represented. And next time David goes to move it, he does it properly. He does it, and this is when David then comes into Jerusalem with dancing and so on, and of course Micah, his wife, sees him, and she's very displeased with this. Um, but David was just, just leading this procession, and the Levites then were the ones that were carrying the ark and doing it properly. Now Solomon is about to move the ark again, moving it now from uh, the tabernacle that had been there into the temple. 
And so he's calling all the dignitaries, all the leaders of the nation. Everybody needs to be there for this event in the seventh month. We're told all the elders came and the priests took up the ark. I mean, it's just a little thing. But Solomon has learned from a mistake that his father had made. You know, there's a lot of wisdom in learning from mistakes that people that have gone before us have made. Seeing where they've stumbled, seeing what it's cost them. You know, and there's a number of times in our lives that God allows us to see those things. And if we learn from those mistakes, how much pain it saves us if we just stick to following God's clear instructions for our lives. And they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of the congregation and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle. Even those did the priests and the Levites bring up. The ones that God had ordained to carry. You see, God ordains certain people to do certain things. And if people who are not ordained to do those things try and do those things, it can be very dangerous. It can cost an awful lot. You know, and before you step out in ministry, make sure that it's God that's ordained you. Don't just step out in ministry for the Lord because you want to do it. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have loved to have been involved in this process. Oh, wouldn't it be great to to carry the ark and all these things that are going up to the temple? Wonderful sense of occasion. But of course, God had ordained who was going to do it. You know, so again, from a ministry point of view, you know, it's great to have a desire and enthusiasm, but make sure before you step out in ministry and do things for God, that it is God who has called you to do things. Sadly, we live in a world where those who are ordained, by and large, are ordained of men, not of God. Verse 4. And they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of the congregation and the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle. Even those did the priests and the Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. Again, just that reminder, you know, there's a lot of blood being shed here. But you see, it's blood that makes atonement for our sin. The life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus 17.11 tells us. You know, life is dependent upon blood. Day five of creation is the first day we have something that is actually living. Now we have the plants and so on prior to that, but they're not living in the same way as you and I tend to think of life. And the first thing that is living is that which has blood. And of course, God makes it very clear that the penalty for sin is death. And of course, therefore, the shedding, if blood speaks of life, it's the shedding of blood that would then bring that death. And so right from the Garden of Eden onwards, God institutes the first blood sacrifice where the blood of an innocent substitute is shed so that Adam and Eve can be clothed in those skins. And we see this all the way through. A lot of blood being shed here, but just reminding us of the cost of sin. The cost of our relationship with God. That they could do this and represent God with these artifacts, with the, the ark and all these other things, even the temple itself. was only possible because of the shed blood. It was only possible because a price had been paid to atone for their sin. And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place into the oracle, the holy of holies, of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. These are now all in place. Now the ark is placed between them. For the cherubims spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. 
and they drew out the staves. The ends of the staves were seen out of the holy place before the oracle, um, and they were not seen without. Uh, and they were there unto and they're there unto this day. Now that last comment that they're there unto this day uh, leads some to believe that Jeremiah is our author, because this is written at a time when the ark seemingly is still in the temple. Now. Some suggest that Ezra is the author of Kings, and possibly, uh, certainly is a, is a good candidate. But Ezra, of course, writes at a time after the ark has been taken, after the temple had been destroyed. But the author here, seemingly, is writing about something that was still present and standing in his day. So it may well be that Jeremiah is the author of uh, the book of Kings. i just throw that out as a thought for you. <clears throat> Verse 9, there was nothing in the ark save the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests would come out of the holy place. In fact, let me just, just pause there because some will pick up a verse in Hebrews that tells us there were other things in the ark beside those. Now, why here we're told that only the tablets of stone are there, not the rod of Aaron, not the pot of manna, whether they were taken out and put somewhere separately, we're not told. But at this point, we are told here, uh, just those two tablets of stones in there. And it came to pass that when the priests would come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. And this is the, the glory of God now, uh, just filling this place, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. You know, this is fascinating to me because these priests are there. They've got a job to do. But suddenly they're prevented from doing that job by effectively the one whom they're doing the job for, ultimately. You know, the glory of God just overshadows the work they're doing. And you just get the impression that they are just, just, just in awe and humbled in this situation as the glory of God is just filling the house. And no longer can they do what they do. They couldn't stand to minister. They couldn't do the work. They're just effectively laid open before the Lord. Then spake Solomon, and here we go. The Lord that said that he would dwell in thick darkness, I have surely built thee a house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel. And all the congregation of Israel stood and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spoke with his mouth unto David my father, and has with his hand fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David my father, Whereas it was in thine heart to build a house unto my name, thou did well that it was in thine heart. Nevertheless, thou shalt not build the house, but thy son, that shall come forth out of thy loins, he shall build the house unto my name. And the Lord has performed his word that he spoke. And uh, I am risen up in the room of David my father to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And I have set there a place for the ark wherein is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now notice this. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands towards heaven and said, 
Okay, so Solomon's just given his background. He's talked about what God has done. That it was he was commissioned to do this work. It's now finished. He's told everybody why he was doing it, what it's for, and now he's about to launch into this prayer. And it begins one of the longest and most impassioned prayers in Scripture. It goes from verse twenty-three to verse fifty-three, and Solomon starts. You'll notice here by standing before the altar. That's what we're told quite clearly in this verse. Solomon stood before the altar. By verse 53, Solomon is going to be on his knees. And I think there's a really uh, important point here that sometimes we come to God and we can sometimes come fairly casual. I'm not suggesting Solomon was doing that here. But actually, the whole magnitude of the one to whom Solomon is praying seems to overwhelm him through this prayer. And Solomon ends up on his knees before God. It's a great model for us of intercession. Of when we pray for others and we pray to God, knowing that God is a God who hears us. But if we just get down on our knees. In Ezekiel, we're told that the Lord was searching for somebody to stand in the gap. And to pray on behalf of the nation. You know, what about you and I? Do we intercede on behalf of others? Do we pray for them? Do we really go before the throne? Do we get on our knees? Are we that in awe of the God to whom we pray? So let's look at what Solomon prays. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keeps covenant and mercy with thy servants that walks before thee with all their heart. But just to start here, this is where, when we go to the Lord in prayer, this is where it should begin. You know, what is it Jesus says we should pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, start focusing upon the one to whom you are praying. So many is when we pray, we kind of skip the introduction and go straight to my list, don't we? Well, Solomon here does it the correct way, the way that Jesus says we should pray. Again, how different is the God of the Bible to any other supposed deity? God is just unique. God is unchanging. He's dependable, trustworthy, honest, enduring, unfailing. He's righteous, just, and merciful. What a great basis this is for our prayers. You see, James speaks about praying and asking for things in faith. Yeah, we should have faith when we come to God. Well, if we start with thinking who God is, it makes that an awful lot easier. When we go based upon our own current circumstance and predicament, and then we go and pray, that's kind of our focus. That's the problem. And sometimes it's easy, therefore, to doubt. But when we start by focusing upon God, it changes everything. And Solomon carries on. Who has kept with thy servant, my father, that thou promised him, who spoke also with thy mouth and has fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. Notice what he does here as well. It's kind of very much our Father. You know, when you pray, you're not just praying as an isolated individual. You're part of the body of Christ. As Solomon prays, he's really calling into the fact that actually it's not just me, God, here. This is, you are David, my father's father. You're my father. You're the father of our nation. Verse 25. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that thou hast promised him, saying, that there should not fail thee a man in, thy, in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, 
that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. This is just another interesting thing here to mention, that Solomon is praying to God based upon God's promises. Well, haven't we been looking at recently? You know, we can go to God, we can claim those promises, because God doesn't change. And when God gives us promises, we can go and remind God of those promises, because they're there for us. And this promise has been promised to David. Solomon is just saying, God, this is the basis for my prayer. This is the basis for what I'm going to ask. Who you are, your awesomeness as the creator God who established and sustains all things. You're a God who's already given me promises. I'm claiming these promises right now. And on the basis of that, I want to ask some things. And this is what Solomon's going to lead into. And now, my God of Israel, let... Thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spoke unto thy servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven of heaven, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded? The great wisdom from Solomon, Isaiah 66, we looked at a few weeks ago, just again says that to us. Yet if thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee today. That thine eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there, and thou uh, mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place, and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. Interesting. Solomon starts something here that has been adopted by Islam. Praying towards a particular building. You see, this was all about praying toward the temple in Jerusalem. The place that God was going to put his name there. And of course, Islam adopts this. And so prayers now, you'll notice that the, the, the Muslims will pray towards Mecca. They always have their mats facing that particular way. Their mosques are built in such a way that they can pray that way. Interesting, isn't it? That you know they are very devout in their prayers. You know, what about us in our prayer life? It just does challenge us, or should challenge us, just a little there. If any man trespass against his neighbour and uh, an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear and the oath come before thine altar in this house, then that hear thou in heaven and do and judge thy servants, condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head and to justify the righteous, to give him according to his righteousness. When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee, and shall turn again to thee, and confess thy name, and pray, and make supplication unto thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven, and forgive the sin of, the pe- of thy people Israel, and bring them again unto the land which thou gave unto their fathers. When heaven is shut up, and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee. Now, Again, Solomon, having experienced this uh, himself, the drought that had come upon Israel, uh, no doubt he was very mindful of this as he's praying even this prayer. And if they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel, that thou teach them the good way wherein thou should walk and give rain upon the land which thou hast given to thy people for an inheritance. And if there be in... 
Uh, sorry, and if there be in the land famine, and if there be pestilence, blasting mildew, locusts, or if there be caterpillar, or if their enemy besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever uh, plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man, or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hand toward this house, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. And forgive, and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou, only knowest the hearts of all the children of men. That they may fear thee all the days that they, uh, they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but comes out of a far country for thy name's sake. Oh, by the way, that could be you and I. For they shall hear of thy great name and of thy strong hand and of the stretched out arm. When he shall come and pray toward this house, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. And do according to all that the stranger calls to thee for. That all people of the earth may know thy name to fear thee as do thy people Israel. And that they may know that this house which I have builded is called by thy name. And if thy people go out into battle against their enemy, whithersoever they shall send them, and they shall pray unto the Lord toward this, uh, toward the city uh, which thou hast chosen and toward the house that I have built for thy name. Then hear thou in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not. <laughs> Interesting aside that Solomon just throws in there, isn't there? Um, and thou will be angry with them and deliver them to the enemy so that they carry them away captives into the land of the enemy far on in. Now this becomes prophecy, not just prayer here. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whether they are carried captives and repent and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned, we have done perversely, we have committed wickedness. And so return to thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, which led them away captives, and pray unto thee toward their land, which thou hast given unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name. We're just going to go on from there in a second, but I just want to just draw your attention to the wording here. As part of this prayer, when they've been taken away captives in a foreign land, if they pray towards the land Israel, towards the city Jerusalem, and towards the temple, and pray, confessing their sin, we have sinned, we have done perversely, we have committed wickedness. Turn with me just quickly in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Because sometime after Solomon... This young man, this godly man, Daniel, comes onto the scene. He's taken away captive to a foreign land because of Israel's sin. And in that land, based upon the very prayer that we are reading here in 1 Kings chapter 8, Daniel sets his heart to pray. Let's just look at the beginning of chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. It says, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And now look, And I set my face unto the Lord God, to seek by prayer and supplications, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God, and made confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping covenant and mercy with them that love him. Now notice the way he prays. 
in the same way that Solomon prays, the same way that Jesus says we should pray. Starting his prayer by speaking of God's greatness. Keeping covenant and mercy with them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. We have sinned, verse 5. We have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts. It's almost the same wording here. Solomon says, we have sinned, we have done perversity, we have committed wickedness. David says the same prayer. If you look over in verse 15. Um, toward the end of the, the prayer that David's praying he gets interrupted by Gabriel halfway through he's praying for the city he's praying for the restoration of the nation of the, the city of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple and verse 15 and now O Lord our God that thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has gotten thee renown as it is this day we have sinned we have done wickedly Again, exactly the same wording as Solomon uses. And I am absolutely convinced that Daniel had a copy of these scriptures, whether he's even been reading and studying. Maybe that day in his Bible study, he sat down and read this, and he's prompted to pray. But what he's praying is based upon what Solomon had prayed, that when they were in a land that wasn't theirs, they could cry out to God, they could look towards the land, to the city, and as the last verse here says, to the house which I have built, as Solomon built, for thy name, and now we carry on, then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven, thy dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee, and all their transgression, wherein they have transgressed against thee, and give them compassion before them who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. And of course, that is what happens. Ultimately, those that have taken them away do have compassion upon them. For they be thy people, thine inheritance, which thou broughtest forth out of Egypt from the midst of the furnace of iron. Just an aside here for further study if you want to. Furnace of iron, of course, being a reference to the trouble that they experienced in Egypt. It was a time of tribulation. There are a number of references in the New Testament that speak of being cast into a fire. A kind of a furnace. And I'll just lay it before you that I believe that many of those references may be indeed references to people being cast into the time of tribulation. I'll let you uh, take that further if you want to. And that thine eyes may be open unto the supplication of thy servant and unto the supplication of thy people Israel to hearken unto them in all that they call for unto thee. For thou didst separate them from among all the people of the earth to be mine inheritance. As thou spokest by the hand of Moses thy servant when thou brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of his praying, a really impassioned prayer, that all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees. Notice, with his hands spread up to heaven. He starts by standing, and he ends up by kneeling. And almost, I can imagine... We're not told in the text, but I can imagine Solomon weeping. As he thinks about the possible future of the nation, what's going to happen? And would there come a time where his descendants would be cast out of this land? Again, you think of the kingdom that Solomon was presiding over. The thought of all that being stripped away from them. And pleading to God that if that were to happen, that God would have mercy and bring them back. And of course, that is exactly what's happened. Not just with the return from Babylon, but even in the days that we live, Jews are returning back to that land. They're turning back to the God of their fathers in desperation.
And he stood and blessed the congregation of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord that has given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he promised. Uh, there has not failed one word of all his good promise. Now that's a scripture you want to kind of mark, isn't it? That there's not failed a single word of the things that God had promised which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts unto him. Notice that work is done by God, inclining our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep all his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. And let these my words, wherein I have made supplication before the Lord, be nigh unto the Lord our God day and night, that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times, as the matter shall require. That all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is none else. You see, Solomon's prayer that God's sustaining and preservation of the nation of Israel before him is to be a witness to the world. This is what Solomon is praying. That God will sustain Israel so that they will become a witness. There's a story I have no idea, I've not been able to verify the, the truthfulness of this, um, but apparently back in the days in, in Europe with the courts of the kings as they were, there was one king who called uh, one of his scribes before him and uh, said, oh, give me one proof, just one proof that God exists. And this scholar just sat there for a moment and just responded and said, the Jew. You know, if people in this world are wanting proof that God exists, it's the Jews. That's why Satan hates them so much. Because it's undeniable proof that God exists. We still have an identifiable ethnic group of people descended from Abraham. That through the most extreme circumstances in their history have remained. They haven't been wiped out. They haven't just disappeared and dissipated into the other nations around them. How many Amalekites do you know? How many Hittites do you know? You can't go to London and find an area that's you know, the place where the Hittite community lives. But you can go and find the Jewish community. Do you know, the existence of the Jews through the centuries, the fact that Israel is a nation again in the land given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The fact that the Jews even now are returning to that land is undeniable evidence that God is God, that the Bible is true and the Jews are his people. And ultimately that darkness will be lifted from their eyes and they will recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. Deuteronomy 4 verse 7 and 8 says, For what nation is there so great who has God so near unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as this law which I set before you this day? I mean, the law that was given to Israel effectively has become the standard of law throughout the world. Muslim nations accepted, of course. God has done an incredible thing through the nation of Israel. We carry on verse 61 and just to conclude the chapter. Let your heart therefore be, fer- be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes, to keep his, keep his commandments as it is this day. And the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. You know, if being called 
should elicit such an attitude of heart and response from the nation. He said they've been called by God. What about us? What kind of response should our hearts give who have been made a holy nation and a royal priesthood? Let your, therefore, let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord. That's what Solomon was saying. Because of all of this that God has done, because of the promise he's given, because of the security we have in him, let your heart be perfect before him. And that was Solomon speaking to the people of the nation. What about us? And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered unto the Lord, two and twenty thousand oxen. We've got 20,000 oxen, we've got 120,000 sheep. And so the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. And again, just as an aside, remember those sheep that have been specially prepared as sacrificial lambs. And they have come from the fields around Bethlehem. We looked at that over the Christmas time. But these lambs that were being offered in sacrifice, they weren't just any old lambs. They've been specifically chosen for that purpose, just as later another lamb would come from the area of Bethlehem. One who'd been born specifically to be offered as a sacrifice. Every one of those slain lands speaks of the Messiah. The same day did the king hallow the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings and meat offerings and fat offerings. Uh, sorry, fat of the peace offerings. Because the brazen altar that was before the Lord was too little to receive the burnt offerings. And the meat offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. So effectively the courtyard is also now used for these offerings. Because there's just so much being offered this day. And at that time... Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great congregation from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days, and seven days even 14 days. So there's two periods of seven days joined together. So 14 days, this period of the feast goes on. And again, the whole area that is being uh, under, under Solomon's control now, uh, everybody is in this celebration of this dedication of the temple. And on the eighth day, he sent the people away. And they blessed the king and went unto their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had done for David his servant and for Israel his people. What an incredible prayer that he offers, incredible situation. You know, you and I think of this though in the context that this celebration that's going on at the end for the dedication of a house, a building that was built, of Materials that will eventually fade away. They eventually got destroyed and knocked down and the Romans in AD 70. The whole building was set on fire. They came in and they scraped the gold and the whole thing. But all the, effort, all the detail that's put in there, and you think again, seven times in the New Testament, we're told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, as we dedicate our temples, our lives to God, there should also be great joy and celebration. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for these wonderful records that we have. Lord, that we can learn so much from. Help us, Father, we pray, to grow in knowledge and in grace. Lord, we need your grace. And we pray that you give us greater knowledge and understanding of your word. That our lives will be dedicated to you with great joy. Knowing that just as you've done with the, the temple, these rocks and so on that have been hewn out of the world. And then overlaid with pure gold. Reflecting the brilliant light 
Oh Lord, let our lives be such for you, we pray. Lord, help us to learn these lessons. Impress them upon our hearts, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.